Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Welcome, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing today? Good. Another of the these endless days of COVID. Here, here we go. Is that Howie Morenz I see peering over your right shoulder? That is Howie Morenz. Ah, number seven with the Habs. Retired number. I've never seen anybody wear it. Yeah, it's by, that is a piece of art by Edmonton folk artist Sid Kelsey, who Sweet. is uh, long deceased now. Sid lived in a house just north of Commonwealth Stadium, and his yard was full of his strange and interesting folk art. Mm-hmm. He was from the Caribbean. And, oh, yeah. Uh, it's and it was kind of, yeah, it's kind of Caribbean-inspired yard decoration. Anyway, I commissioned him to do a piece of uh, the great Howie Morenz, which is the, I think, the uh, archetypical arch- archetypical Canadian hockey story. Mm-hmm. We love the game a little too much. Yep, mandatory 1930 sports reference. We've already dealt with <laughs> that now. <laughs> so... Yeah, uh, off, off and running. Had to shut a door there. Yeah. Yes, Howie Morenz loved the game so much that when he broke his the, the legend is legend has it that when he broke his leg and couldn't play anymore, he died in the hospital. I suspect that he probably died from not heartbreak, but from other reasons due, due to the hospital care at that time. But well, I don't know if he'll ever know that. Yeah, uh, blood clot or something maybe from the from the yeah. injury. Yeah. The, the anyway, died of a broken heart is how the legend reads. And that's uh, right. Who are the we legend. to question the legend? That's right. So, Bruce, we're going to talk today about the presumptive start of the NHL hockey season. We'll talk mm-hmm. about some of the Oilers' issues heading into the season. And um, we finished up our uh, prospect series. We had a vote and that uh, on the prospect rankings, and we talked about that in the last podcast. But that spurred me on to kind of answer the question um is how deep is this prospect pool how good is this prospect pool come up and, and I, I talked about that somewhat i have more kind of final authoritative rankings than i had uh, on our last podcast okay. and then it spurred me on to, to question whether or not the owners would be able to keep together what i think is abs- a pretty outstanding prospect pool probably mm-hmm. the second best in owners history in terms uh, maybe not in terms of the absolute top end talent but in terms of the overall depth of the prospect pool, I think it's probably the second best. It may be actually the deepest prospect pool we've ever seen, with the top-end talent being far greater in a couple of years at least. So we'll talk about that. So let's just quickly just discuss where we're at with the season. And it seems like, um, it seems like the owners and the players have worked out a deal which they can both live with now if if future nhl players had a vote which they don't they would probably vote against they would definitely vote against this deal because essentially the players get the money now and future generations generation of players um are missing out it looks like the, though there's a deal and it and it looks like that's going to go ahead but the only sticking point now being <laughs> covid and it's the the um, havoc that it continues to to wreak on society and the uncertainty around that, and it's it looks like there the problem in Canada is that there's some provincial health authorities that are have questions about how the NHL is going to proceed, which is normal, right? The, there's mm-hmm. there's huge lockdowns, shutdown, mandatory measures across Canada right now. This is the I think it's the biggest wave that we've had. I think it's even if you look at I think I'm correct in saying this. If you look at national numbers across the country, that this is the biggest wave in total that we've had. Um, all parts of the country are affected, except for the Maritimes in the north, which which are which are not, which really locked down tight and have gone for the COVID zero policy. Um, maybe they're more able to go for that policy, but that's again another issue. So there's just a big sticking point, Bruce, about what's going to happen here and whether they're going to have a Canadian division or where it will be in bubble cities. I suspect that they'll have at least three or four Canadian jurisdictions that will will agree, okay, um, the NHL going ahead, and maybe there'll be one or two that won't. So there might be a couple bubble teams or bubble cities. 
Well, the current threat is to send all of the Canadian teams to the States to play the entire season there and just do away with the Canadian division now that we've been tantalized with it for the last several months and presumably just go back to divisions as normal or similar. Uh, that, to me, smacks of being a power play by the NHL trying to kind of, uh, uh, I don't know if intimidates the right word, but trying try, trying, to, trying to uh, uh bring pressure to bear on the provincial authorities in Canada to go along with their wishes and you know what might be behind that what what they're looking for you know as anybody's guess you and I might speculate but maybe this podcast isn't the place to do it because we really don't know but it's um uh it, it when I read that yesterday with those tweets it just put it chill to the whole thing for me i mean we're already got six degrees of separation from this stuff it seems like with uh with all that's going on but to have the have the team based uh, all the canadian teams based in the states for an entire year just seems unworkable to me i just don't see how that what do you what do you mean by six degrees of what do you mean by well, six degrees? I don't know. I guess I'm still going back to the bubble playoffs where I mean they were right here in our city and I they might as well have been playing them on the moon. Now hopefully yeah. we're going to get to the point where where we're um you know able to have, you know, teams traveling around um potentially starting to let fans into the building at some point during the season. But if uh you know, if the Edmonton Oilers are based in Bakersfield, California, that's going to make it a little tougher now, isn't it? That's so, not going to happen. You know, I, I don't. Happen. Yeah, I think it's and a power play, but also if it's a p- pressure tactic, it's not going to mm, work. That's because hard. I think there's going to be some provincial health authorities that are amenable to the NHL playing, like we saw last time in Ontario and in Edmonton. Right? There's going to be some governments that are just more, to to put it in its sim- simplest, crudest terms, they're more business friendly, and some of them are more safety conscious. And what happened last time is in BC, they were more safety conscious and they lost the NHL playoffs. They took uh, themselves right out of the running, as I recall. Yeah. So I don't think the threat of moving to the States is going to move a health official, let's say, and I'm just guessing here in BC, if it's consistent with last time, it's, they're just going to, they'll, they'll think, well, the Canucks aren't, they'll, they'll just think, well, we're going to lose the Canucks, they're not going to play here. And they'll just make the same decision they made last time and they'll say, that's okay. Um, they can go play elsewhere. That's what the decision was in BC last time. And um, I could see them making that decision again. Because if there's no fans in the stands, as you say, it it doesn't have the same import to the hockey fans of that city. If it's just going to be a, on TV, the TV studio could be in Tuktoyaktuk or Patagonia. For all anyone cares, what's the difference in, on a certain level if there's no fans in the stands? So... In a way, if all the Canadians just move to a TV, if all the Canadian teams just move to a, a, a TV studio in Auburn, where's Auburn, Mississippi, uh, what difference would that make? On a certain, Maddie was Mad Jim Matheson was cheekily saying they should all move to the WHA cities, the former WHA cities, uh, Birmingham and San Diego and Cincinnati. Like eh? that. So on a certain <laughs> level, it doesn't really matter where the, the TV studio. Yeah, well. But I, I do think it probably, I, I don't think the Edmonton Oilers are going to want to move, you know, out of their homes, apartments. No kidding. And, you know, the, the management, right. the staff, they, they want to be in their nice dressing room at, at home. Even, a, even, even a hybrid bubble makes more sense, David. I mean, you, 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 you stick the, keep the Canadian teams in Canada and you play the opening round, couple of rounds of the season in a in an approved bubble somewhere, you get a week off here and there that you can go home, 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 and uh, perhaps you know part way through the season when the vaccine's more more fully distributed and the players are are in line for for getting uh, vaccinated uh, and the fans and so on that things loosen up during the season. It's not like the situation that we're seeing now in December is still going to be the case next June. So to make a, a, a draconian decision like that on the entire season and moving the entire league into the United States, it, it just doesn't sit well. I, I don't see it. I, I think there's like a very small chance of that happening. So uh, especially now that we know what the problem was, like the problem seems to be like 
approval from provincial health authorities. This sounds like something that will be worked out in at least one Canadian city, if not many mm-hmm. Canadian cities. And um, maybe there'll be Toronto Edmonton bubbles for the first. For the, right. but but I do think probably probably makes me think that they've that February first date mm-hmm. is more likely than yeah. uh, than uh, January fifteenth. Um, that's oh, what to I, the, today there was scuttlebutt. Was it Bob McKenzie? Anyway, you know, one of the one of the insiders saying that if January thirteenth or fifteenth start is probably off the table if they can't come to an agreement by this weekend, and if by coming to agreement they mean also reaching an agreement with provincial health authorities. Well, this is Friday. You know, it's not going to happen by this weekend. They're going to have to come up with a a plan that has, uh, you know, alternatives built into it. And and uh, tearing apart the Canadian division takes away a lot of alternatives that might work as, uh, as this uh, situation develops. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Um, I think what I think they're going to play somewhere. So, um, well, <sighs> meanwhile, you talk of the Edmonton bubble and the, uh, uh, the World Juniors, which is being played in an Edmonton bubble, is already facing a problem that never happened during the uh, during the extended two months of NHL bubble, which is eight positive tests within a single team today, uh, Germany, uh, which has been uh, put back in quarantine till Christmas Eve, cancelled both their exhibition games, and potentially, I mean, they brought 27 players over uh, if the positive test players can't play it means they have 19 players to start the tournament and a minimum is 18 so and who knows if some of them are goalies you know i mean there's any number of uh, permutations to that crisis but uh that was not welcome news today at all yeah <laughs> covid keeps winning covid keeps winning hmm. so uh but the vaccine will end that win streak so that's the that's the light at the end of the tunnel here, and um, so, see how it all plays out. So, Bruce, um, let's talk a little bit. Uh, we'll we'll finish up with the with with the uh, the goalie piece for the coming into the coming into the season. Let's sure. just start, let's. I just want to. Um, so when I had talked about the best prospect pools of uh, the Edmonton Oilers history, I had suggested it last time that it was 1980. But if you think about the class of 1979 in the in the um for the oilers it has to include wayne gretzky and i hadn't done that initially now the nhl the nhl didn't consider him a rookie no nope. and i that really upset and i'm gonna say for my purposes i'm gonna i i say that he, he should have been considered an nhl rookie the nhl didn't consider wha statistics to be official statistics right. they didn't consider it an official league it really was the equivalent of somewhere between by then somewhere between the AHL and the NHL. It wasn't, oh. it wasn't NHL quality hockey at that. It was, you know, close ish, but, um, getting closer by the year, for getting sure. closer by the year, but Wayne Gretzky was a rookie and I'm going to say I'm including him in the newcomer rookie prospect. I'm considering him as a, a in that class along with Risto Silton and Dave Hunter. And when when and I Mark, include those and Mark players, Messier. and Mark Messier, because yeah, mm-hmm. we I had included Messier, but really mm-hmm. under the same standard, he, he shouldn't have been included. So if you go, if you if the, that that rookie class, that prospect class had Gretzky, Messier, Kevin Lowe, Glenn Addison, Charlie Huddy, Lisa <laughs> Silkman, and Hunter, it is. Yeah. I can't imagine. Now there might be some Montreal Canadiens newcomer class that had a similar number. Of well, Hall of Famers. If you if you went back, like McDonald, I, he never played in the NHL before he came in with the Oilers. I mean, not, it's you know. I would so I would I would put an age limit on it. Like <laughs> there has like you're 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 playing with history a little bit. You're trying to make, go with what makes sense. Mm-hmm. So you're right. There's some older players on that that were had never played in the NHL, but I wouldn't consider them rookies because of their age. So I you know if you go yeah. with like under 22 maybe, and um, uh if that's your kind of cutoff line, something like that. I think you can think of something fair. Anyway, I'm going to say that 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 class of newcoming, in, oh. incoming players, newcomers to pro hockey, not really to pro hockey, but. Then you may have the greatest uh, 
class in the, in the history of the league, let alone the Oilers, if you're including all those guys as uh, as prospects. Which I think is fair to do. Okay. All right. And then, so so where does this latest group rank rank for the Oilers? Um, the, I'd say the class of 2019, which is uh, Yamamoto, Bear, Jones, Marino, who, who went, ended up in Pittsburgh, obviously. Bouchard, Broberg, Lavoie, Samarukov, Maximov, Benson, Lagasin, McLeod, and Kesselring um, is one of the, that's the deepest pool the Oilers have probably ever had in terms of people who might make the NHL. And if you add Holloway's, um, Savoie, and um, Tulio to that group, this is just a very, very, very deep group of prospects for the Edmonton Oilers. It's it's an outstanding group. There's, there's all kinds of players within that group who have the potential to be um, top-pairing demon, certainly top-four demon in the NHL, and and also a, a number of them now who have the potential to be top-six forwards. Yamamoto's already broken in as one. So there's there's three or four forwards who could be in the top six. There's three or four defensemen who could be in the top four. And that's a that's really uh, great work by the Oilers organization over the last five years to accumulate that kind of talent. And um, the only question I was left with is, are we going to squander this group of talent? Right. What do you think of this prospect pool, though, overall? Like, when you think of it, um, how would you rate it, Bruce? I like I like it for depth. Uh, the high-end talent is, you know, I mean, the, the top guys are obviously good players, but there's no sort of overarching superstars up there. There's no Gretzky's or Messier's, to put it that way. Uh, I would counter that, in retrospect, if we revisited the class of 2015, uh, which had McDavid, uh, which had Nurse, who hadn't played. We we disqualified Drysaddle because he'd played over. He, he'd used up his rookie status the year before, although he was t- still very much seriously a prospect. But in 2015, we didn't know what we had yet, but already Bear, Jones, Marino, who's gone now, were in that mix. Uh, Griffin Reinhardt, who was an NHL rookie, uh, as I recall, maybe not. Oh, he was... Uh, he was. Yeah, he was. He played eight games in New York, and he played. Yeah, anyway, he was a, he was a rookie, and he would have been highly rated at that time, obviously, given what they gave up for him. Uh, so maybe that class. I mean, we obviously have a much finer focus now on guys like Bear and Jones, where in 2015, you know, they were in the past. I think we rated them fairly high because we liked what we saw, but it was way way early days. So sometimes you kind of have to go back a few years and when these guys first came in and maybe you can find a, you know, a different group. I mean, McDavid I, alone makes the 2015 group stand out from anything else that, uh, uh that we've seen and, uh, uh, seen in recent years. So, yeah. But, the 2014, 15 group, you know, if you put dry settle McDavid together, like if you, you know, like a, there's a kind years. of a, a cluster of player with Clef bomb included in that nurse. Mm-hmm. I mean, Gustafson, they let slip through their fingers. Um, Eric Gustafson, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's other, you know, yeah. there's Pitlick and Osterley in, in that same group, Jerry right. So there's some okay-ish depth players. Um, so that's not a bad group. 2014-15 is a pretty, I mean, that's the heart of this team is McDavid and mm-hmm. Dreisaitl, obviously. And Nurse and Clefbaum, if he was healthy, but um, that that is a, that's a very strong cohort as well. And, you know, in terms of elite talent in this latest group, Broberg and Bouchard could become elite NHL hockey players and maybe one of the forwards, uh, maybe La- maybe Lavoie, maybe um, Holloway, maybe Savoy. Like there's some candidates to be elite mm-hmm. forwards in the NHL. Right. Um, we just don't know. Maybe Yamamoto is going to be an elite forward in the NHL over time. I mean, he's certainly trending that way right now. He, you know, his points per game in the last half of the season was elite. So, um, yeah, Bruce, this is a really, really hopeful group. And the, so the, the issue then becomes, can they, are they going to squander this group, uh, this talented group of players? And the owners have a terrible history of squandering talent. And it started for economic reasons under Peter Poglington. They obviously squandered the, the talent on those Stanley Cup winning teams. They probably would have won one or two or three more Stanley Cups than they did if they hadn't sold off Gretzky and Messier and 
Curry and traded off all these other players, Coffee and Addison and Fuhrer and blah, blah, endless list of players. And that continued on when they got rid of Dom Foose and Joe Murphy and Madsen and Curtis Joseph, Doug Waite. Um, they just couldn't hold on to players increasingly for economic reasons because the Oilers' revenues were the lowest in the league for, for or the second lowest in the league, lowest in the league for a number of years. But then yeah. they were wandering Sorry, those second-generation trades, when they traded the guys that they got for the guy, first guys yeah. that they traded, and when they moved on from the second guys, you know, yeah. when they moved away from Vincent uh, Pousse, for example, uh, you know, that they gave up Anderson and Fuhrer to get, and they got a good player back, and then they moved him out for Shane Carson. Each time, it seemed like they were trading down and getting a lesser player back than... Uh, than the guys that uh, that they moved on from, and then they started trading away younger guys or losing younger guys like Jeff Bukaboom and Adam Graves to the Rangers. Uh, you know that uh, it was you know they 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 were taking a dive off the high board at that point. So it was always at that point from about uh, 90, 1991 to. 2005 till the new CBA it was for economic reasons that the Oilers yeah. would move out talented players so that's a that's a you're squandering them in the big picture there's there was an economic reason that happened we were kind of a second you know we were kind of like lower Premier League team selling to the top Premier League teams our players uh, it, for a football analogy and um, that's you know that's what happened and it was really hard to take as an Oilers fan and such great news when the CBA changed and also Edmonton's economy changed. We became a boom economy from, you know, 1998 to 2015, 2014. This city just boomed because of the oil, oil sands. And um, it changed the economics of the Oilers as well. They made more money as a franchise. The CBA improved and then they got the new arena and they got a new, more wealthy owner in Daryl Cates, more willing to spend money. I don't know if he's mm -hmm. more wealthy than some of the guys in the EIG, but he definitely uh, was more willing to spend money on the team. But we still lost players, Bruce. Mm -hmm. And this is where we get into the era where, and I'm going to say the theme is a consistent um, undervaluing of the talent on your own team and wishing they were something else, wishing they were something more and getting rid of them because of that. Um, you know, usually because they weren't gritty enough, I believe. So we lost players like, you know, we had some good veteran players and we just lost them. And, and players that were lost because they weren't gritty enough, I'm going to say Brodziak, Kyle Brodziak was sent away. Maybe Andrew Cogliano, um, Tom Gilbert. And the one that, that hurts Oiler fans the most is the Jeff Petrie trade because it, it uh, set off a whole lot of bad things in motion I you know it set off the orders not having a top team and so Justin Schultz was thrown into the fire so they had to trade Adam Larson trade for a uh, to fill that hole they had to trade Taylor Hall to get Adam Larson the other thing it set off was was possibly the orders winning the lottery to get Connor McDavid though so mm -hmm. what's oh, your yeah, take the like, two are irretrievably connected I just, well, why do you think they squandered the talent so much, Bruce? In, you know, they had decent veteran talent and they just kept getting rid of it. I've never been able to understand it, David. I mean, you can look at any team, any successful team, and you'll find players, rank and file players within that team that were drafted or acquired as very young pre-NHL players by that organization that are dotted throughout the lineup, not just top line guys, but second, third, fourth line guys, spares, uh, tweeners, uh, third pairing defensemen. And with the Edmonton Oilers, it seemed like if a draft pick turned out to be an NHLer, but he wasn't a top line player, they'd just get rid of him. I mean, here's a list. This is draft picks chosen in the top 50. So this is a relatively you know small number of picks in a nine-year span uh, 2002 to 2010. Uh, Jared Stahl traded at 26. Matt Green traded at 25. Mark Puglia released at 25. 
Devin Dubnik traded at 27. Andrew Cogliano traded at 24. Jeff Petrie traded at 26. Sam Gagne traded at 24. Jordan Everly traded at 27. He's the old man in this crew. Magnus Payari traded at 22. Anton Lander released at 26. Taylor Hall traded at 24. 11 guys picked in the top 50, and none of them stuck around. They got rid of all of them in their mid-20s. All of them. And, and a lot of those. And a lot of them went on to have to be good players. Like maybe Kyarvi <laughs> didn't ever get any better, but right, you know. But Lander was a decent fourth line center, and 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 all the other guys had really good years. All of them had, and some of them had exceptionally good years. Like Stoll and Matt Green were were useful depth players on a Stanley, a team that won two Stanley Cups. That doesn't include uh, Curtis Glencross, right? Right. Who they just inexplicably didn't sign after he 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 was obviously. A, <laughs> a decent hockey player. Rafi Torres, they got rid of, they got rid of Rafi Torres, who was still yep. when he was 26. And yep. he went on to have, now I understand there might've been with all of these players, like there's always rumors, like why they got rid of these players. So some of them, you know, maybe needed a change of scenery. I'll grant them that, but all of them needed a change of scenery. Yeah. Maybe the change of scenery needed to happen in Edmonton with the management um, yep. being better managers and and i know that you and i at the time we would often defend like people are gonna say oh you and you and bruce you defended those guys and we did at times too like that's well, true so so uh i have consistently uh, railed against this aspect of the of the order so not keeping their own yes, players and yeah, the, that list that i cited you comes from a post i wrote uh, in march of 2019 titled if edmonton oilers want to grow an organizational culture Maybe they could try hanging on to their own players. That would have been a change. And it's, uh, I think it's changing with Ken Holland. And I, this is why I will defend Ken Holland. I, I'm seeing steps in that direction that he's uh, nurturing and developing and and, uh, and growing the organization from inside. And, you know, even when Detroit was a bad team at the end of his tenure, it was a team of players that was, that was grown from within, players that had value that... Um, uh, that other teams valued that when they traded them, they didn't get nothing in return. They actually got something back for them. But one of the things here was orders kept changing out their GM. And every time they brought in a new GM, he would seem to, like, he'd get rid of the bottom six from the previous team, and he'd bring in a whole new bottom six, but it would all be guys from other teams. And there would never be, you know, guys bubbling up from under that, that stuck around and, you know, McTee did a lot of good in terms of drafting Drysaddle and Nurse. Like, yep. two huge pieces that, that Craig McTavish acquired. But his undervaluing of Jeff Petrie um, was a, a major, major mistake. And uh, we, I did a fan poll. And that, along with the Griffin-Reinhardt trade, were identified as the two biggest squandering of assets in that whole decade of darkness. That's what fans thought were the two, and even more than the Taylor Hall trade, for instance, Bruce, um, which was had considerably less support as the worst move. Those two things, the Petrie uh, trade and the, um, and the, and I would also sing, to me, I hated the Tom Gilbert trade for Nick Schultz. This, from the day Nick Schultz came, he was never as good a player as Tom Gilbert was. And, you know, maybe I like Tom Gilbert a little bit maybe I overrated him a little bit, but he was, he, you know, by the end of his time in the NHL with the Oilers, excuse me, Tom Gilbert was a, a serviceable, you know, um, probably number three defenseman in mm-hmm. the NHL. Like they had him on the top pairing in Edmonton cause they had nobody else, but he, he, he was hanging in there in that role in kind of a similar way, like to Oscar Clefbaum right now, like playing at a similar level uh, as that he was, he wasn't that bad a player. And, they just threw him away for a guy who was past his best before date in Nick Schultz and Tamby. I don't know what Tamby was thinking. I guess he was thought this was the answer. Nick Schultz. Yeah. Well, and, and there are individual trades that certainly are going to be defended as hockey trades. I, ha- I have people whose opinion I respect who, who still like the trade of uh, Jarrett Stahl and Matt Green for Lubomir Wisniewski. And on the surface, the Oilers got the best player in that trade in Viznovsky, but he played 100 games in Edmonton. And they got rid of two guys that they, you know, they drafted six years before. They moved moved away from them. These are guys, you know, played with the Oilers in the Stanley Cup finals. They would go on to play in, in uh, two more finals and win them both in Los Angeles. 
And the same year that, you know, they traded Rafi Torres and they brought in uh, uh, the kid there, Gil, Gil, uh, Gilbert Brule. And again, you know, a 26, 27-year-old Euler lifer, gone, see ya, we've had enough. And I mean, none of those guys were world beaters, but they're all NHL caliber players. And Matt Green probably was that was one of the leaders on that team, Bruce. Like you, you talk, they talked about a lack of culture on that team. Well, you you trade away the guy who is your your your, your who sets the tone, who sets the culture, even though he's not your best player. And you bring in, I don't know what Lubos Vishnovsky's personality was like, but maybe he's maybe I don't know. I I, I can't say. But if you mm-hmm. trade a character player, and let's say in theory you trade a character player for kind of a guy who's passing through, who's a quiet guy, a good guy, but you know, it's not a not a leader in any way, even if he is a talented player. So the orders just they just were they just they were clueless, obviously. Under the Tambellini era, they were it just it's pretty clear they were utterly clueless. And Kevin Lowe's great mistake as an Oilers manager was stepping away from the GM job himself and hiring the wrong guy. And um, th- that's clearly what happened under with Tambellini. And, um, you know, I was, I defended Tambi for a long time, so I, I can't, you know, I was wrong. I was wrong to do that. He was just not the right guy for that role. And um, McTavish was better, I think, uh, than Tambellini. But he also made mistakes uh, and some fairly major ones. You know, and he hiring, didn't sign hiring Dallas, hiring Dallas Aikens. Yes. Who, who proceeded to alienate a number of Oilers players, including the aforementioned Jeff Petrie, who uh, in game three of uh, the 2014-15 season, when he was on his challenge contract, game three in Los Angeles against the Stanley Cup champions, game three of the season, Aikens benched Jeff Petrie with his family in town to watch him play uh, so that he could give Darnell Nurse at age 19 his NHL debut against the Stanley Cup champions. Final score of 6-1 LA. And just one of a series of, I don't like saying unforgivable, but close, uh, unexplainable, unforced errors by uh, Dallas Aikens. It was... Uh, and, you know, he lost Neil Yakupov similarly very, very early in the previous season when he benched him for a pair of high-profile games. And uh, and uh, I think he, he, he uh, you know, he lost the kid in the process. Yeah. it just I just think they, they had this missing middle on the team for a long time because they traded away all these veterans. And if they, maybe if they had kept Green and uh, Matt Green as, as a leader on the team, and Stoll and and Brodziak and maybe these guys develop into maybe, maybe they needed to learn as leaders, but Green certainly had that potential and um, Cogliano and so then Hall, these younger players like Hall and Everly get better leadership. They become slightly different players because of that. There's a, there's just a different vibe on that team because there's a strong leadership core and the owners essentially just blew it up. They but they. What? They tried to import leadership, and it it didn't work. But why keep uh, why keep Andrew Cogliano as a role player when you can bring in Eric Belanger and Ben Eager? <laughs> exactly, precisely. <sighs> you know, and then you have Glenn, Glenn Cross. Palm. Like I think Glenn Cross was a pretty was seen oh, as a character man. and a gritty, hardworking player in Calgary. You just they stripped the team of those players and. And it didn't work out. So now let's move to the future, Bruce. Mm, Here's yes. the thing I would say about Ken Holland. Like you, and you recognized this last year. Every player that came in, they seemed to have at least a plan for him. Mm-hmm. He, he was going to get this window of opportunity to prove himself. And this includes players like Granlund. Is it, was it, Mar- it was Marcus Granlund, right? That, that's when we had mm-hmm. here. Marcus Granlund and, um, and uh, Thomas Yurcho and players like that, like who are now long gone, but they all had their little moment in the sun where they had this opportunity. Mm-hmm. And it's, it seems like before Holland moves on from players, there's just more of a process. And I would include Matt Benning in this because so Matt Benning comes the closest to have they, okay, have they thrown away another veteran leader on this team, you know, who's just heading into his prime years and is going to be a character guy and could provide team leadership. But I would say that they, 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 gave Matt Benning every opportunity 
to um, become a real part of this team and a, and a vital part of this team. And in the end, I think, was found just a little bit wanting and they decided to move on. So they're, so they're bringing in Tyson Berry instead. But I think that's really defensible as a hockey move. Like it's, an, it's actually, I would say, an, an essential hockey mm-hmm. move. They've got to get better puck-moving defensemen. They've, they've, they've got to move that puck better. They can't have that same inefficiency in that area. And so they, so I don't see the betting move as the same, let's say, as moving out Matt Green for Vishnovsky. Um, I mean, I guess you could, uh, you, there could be a, an equivalent, equivalency between the two moves. But I think it's going to, I think this will work out better. And I also think the Oilers just have, they actually have the middle now. They have this core group of players and it's McDavid heading into his pr- prime, Dreisaitl, um, Darnell Nurse, uh, Ryan Nugent Hopkins. They have the, that veteran group of players. Mm-hmm. So Matt Benning, um, they're going to, they might miss him and he might actually help Nashville. But I don't think they're going to miss him in a way that he's not going to be as central a player as Matt Green and, and Stoll and Curtis Glencross would have been at that time. Brodziak to the Oilers. Like they have their central players and they're actually fortunately the team's best players this time. So it's a little different. And so I'm hopeful Holland will do a better job. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the track record says he's going to do it different than than what we've seen. And uh, the stability of of uh, uh, of him, you know, having a five-year contract, mind you, Shirelli had similar, and he didn't last the five years. But uh, I think, there, you know, there's going to be a more sort of uh, a longer term, uh, big picture, long view of uh, of how the team is developed than uh, some of the piecemeal stuff that we've uh, we've been subjected to over the years. Well, Shirelli's mistake, he, he, he did some things right. Uh, you know, he made some mm-hmm. good trades in the first year, brought in Talbot and Patrick Maroon and Zach Cassian. And, but he again, tried to p- rush things and, you know, push things too fast. So he, he tried to use free agent signings and trades to, to push things. So this is, this explains the, the Griffin Reinhardt trade and explains the Milan Lucic signing. And, you know, he's trying to rush things along and, just never seems to work out, does it, when you try to rush? And what we see with Holland is a very, so far at least, it's just been a short period of time, of course. But what we are seeing is patience preached and patience being enacted. And before our before our very eyes, you know, let's go back to that list of prospects for a second here. And, yeah. um, you know, Yamamoto, let's start with Yamamoto. He was not rushed even last year. He was sent to the minors. For the until Christmas, just like they said he was going to be, and how did that work out? Better. I mean, the thing with Yamamoto, if you look at his track record, the first year after he was drafted, he was put right in the NHL, then he was sent back, and the second year after he was drafted, he was put right in the NHL, and then he was sent down to the minors. And each year, you know, there was sort of a, a feeling of somehow failure in this player that he was given this chance and he didn't cut the mustard. And then only in the third year did they finally start the guy in the in the freaking AHL as a developing player, and then call him up when he was ready. I mean, they finally got the 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 horse in front of the cart, and hey, it worked. Who knew? So with all of these players, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens, like with Holloway, Dylan Holloway, and um, Savoie, because the, if they if they tear it up in the NCAA this year, which they could each easily well do. Um, I wonder how long they'll stay there. I guess, you know, it's partly up to them. But the whole question is how how quick they're going to be. Developing in the AHL is just as good as developing in the NCAA on, on for, for, for really talented hockey players. So maybe that's what where they're going to head. But I just see, you know, Bouchard is not being rushed along. Broberry, they're talking about Broberry heading back to Sweden right after... Um, Maddie wrote this week that it, right after the the World Juniors over, Broberg's going to go right back. Broberg's going right oh, back to right? Sweden. Okay. Uh, yeah, Maddie had. I a thought team. he might be in training camp and then back. I was I was sure he wasn't going to make the team, but I, and I, I thought I think they might give him some some time. I just think that's the exact right decision. 
you know, I would have been no, okay right. if he was in training camp and then send yeah. him back. But on the other hand, just send him back. Like, he, 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 that's the right league for him this year. You and I have been watching him there. We see the development, the kind of up and down, trending upward development, I think, that's happening with this player in 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 Kleftia. And I think that's where he should be this year. So, um, Sam Rukov's staying in the KHL all year long. Uh, part of this is related to to COVID, of, quote, of course. Mm-hmm. Raphael Lavoie is staying in Sweden all year. Um, we'll see what Ryan McLeod, would he, would, I he's think he'll not, be he's coming squad. over. I think he'll be taxi squad, McLeod. Yeah, or in the AHL, if there's an AHL this year. So, That's and Loggison's the same thing. He'll Loggison will be either taxi squad or uh, with the Oilers. I think he's number seven. Yeah, and he should be. Benson's the same thing. He should be taxi squad or the Oilers or the AHL. One of those. So, so they're bringing over the right guys in there, but they're also key. You know, it's really good for Sam Rukov and uh, Raphael Lavoie to get that full year over in Europe. And Tyler Tulio, it's good he went over there because now there's talk that the uh, OHL season may be cancelled altogether, is the latest uh, rumors well, the circulating. Dub, the dub put off their already delayed start, which was January 4th or 5th or, or something, or right after the World Junior, maybe. Uh, it was early January, and all they've announced is it's been further delayed so the odds are starting to build that the whole season might just be a write-off the Oilers are are interestingly inoculated from the major junior leagues going not playing this year in Canada because they have not one if I'm not mistaken they don't have one prospect who will sit out for that reason every single Oiler prospect is playing in Europe right now Mm -hmm. or in uh, U.S. college so um that's (laughs) That's, they only, that's kind of they only drafted one, and yeah, it was Tulio. And he's and all over there. Last year they drafted Lavoie, but he was a 19-year-old, so last year would have been his last year in junior anyway. So he, you know, he would have been AHL bound if there were any, you know. But so they've really gone away from the CHL and especially the WHL these last uh, few years after. Uh, Picking a lot of would-be prospects from the dub, they've almost completely gone away from it. Maximov, is he staying over there? Do we know? I can't remember. Uh, I believe so. Yeah. I, believe so. I, I think, think the guy's loaned to the KHL. The loan was for the season. Yeah, so that was a really solid move by the Oilers. And I don't know where the other teams sit. Like, if they're European players, what mm-hmm. if there's a lot more players kind of in limbo on other teams sitting around and not playing, but... Uh, Mm-hmm. it's working out. And so the Oilers are going to get a full year of development for all of these players. The only player that the Oilers allowed to slip through their fingers was John Marino. And that is obviously, you know, viewed 20 years from now, when you forget the circumstances, that doesn't look good, right? It's like Gustafson leaving, maybe worse. Um, it's like, um, Toby Reed or Riley Nash or Reed or not signing. On another on an on another level, what can you do with any of these guys, Nash or Reader or Gustafson? If they don't, if if it's a if the owners were keen to sign them and the players just didn't want to sign here, and that's definitely the sense I get with Marino. He just wasn't going to sign here. It's not after Shirley left. It happened on Holland's watch, but really, um, I, I have a hard time blaming Holland for that because it's just it, essentially these players are free agents, mm-hmm. and. Um, they're they put the team in a tough position and what what can you do you just have to move on suck it up and move on it's the hazard of drafting ncaa players it could happen with kessel ring it could happen with holloway or 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 savoie in theory anytime the player goes that route that that's a possibility but i don't see it happening with any of those three and it didn't happen with camp who i thought it might happen with so um yeah any final thoughts on whether they'll squander them or not, Bruce? Or? Well, they'll squander some of them just because of sheer numbers. But also, I mean, sheer numbers, uh, they're not all going to reach Adam. the highest level of their promise either. Injuries are going to happen or guys are going to fall off or they're going to reach a level that, you know, that they just can't succeed at anymore. Uh, but I'd like to think there's, a, there's enough... Uh, enough talent spread among enough players that you're going to be able to build in some of these um, some of these um, depth players within your organization. If you develop a top liner or two, you know, like Kyler Yamamoto promises to be, 
uh, well, obviously, so much the better. But, you know, I mean, I default to the Tampa Bay Lightning roster. We're sure they got their high-end stars like uh, Braden Point and Nikita Kucherov that they drafted in the second round, both of them. But they all, you look all through their lineup and you find guys like Cedric Paquette and uh, Anthony Sorelli and uh, Alex Kalorn, you know, guys they drafted in some cases years ago and, you know, mid-round draft pick. And yet those guys are part of the heart and soul of that team. The, the biggest threat to the Oilers, to, to squandering this talent, is if they sign veteran players to long-term contracts who no longer perform, and they block the way. They block roster spots. So how many players do the Oilers have like that? Well, they have James Neal, right, who probably, uh, you know, might not even might not be have gotten a contract with the Oilers for this coming season under, under other circumstances. So they have Alex Chase on, who actually I think is a decent NHL player still. One, one year, that's a different For story. one more year. But so he's not really blocked. He, in theory, like he's blocking Puliyarvi in theory a little bit right now. But but that might work out. But so they have James Neal, and the other threat for blocking is obviously Zach Cassian. If Zach Cassian doesn't turn out as a player, he's going to be taking up a roster spot for the next four years, and could could block. But on defense, there's really there's Clefbaum has got three years um, left on his deal. But they don't. Other than that, Bruce, they don't. They're in a good position to have. In kind of kind of a in a regular basis, roster spots open up. Right. So as long as they don't give too many, if they don't go for that quick fix and sign that 27, 20, like Montreal, I think much what Montreal did this year, signing all these guys 26, 27, 28 to long-term deals, kind of iffy players. To me, that's that's a really that's that's Steve Tambellini style NHL leadership, in my view. And I maybe Montreal will prove me wrong in the long term, but that's what I see in Montreal. And the, but the Oilers, other than Neil and possibly Cassian, don't really have those block, those those kind of contracts that that screw up a team so badly. Tampa's Tampa's kind of in that situation now where they're kind of clogged up with those contracts. Edmonton could easily get in that situation, Bruce. You know, mm-hmm. if they sign players to, to to deals and they don't perform, but they're not there right now. Well, those are internally paid players, at least in Tampa's case, where you know, where they didn't go out and pay a big stack of money for a long time for free agents. They just developed guys that became good enough that they had to pay them, yeah. which is kind of the ideal. Uh, and when it comes to veteran players, that's where one-year contracts, two years marginally so, one-year contracts are your friend. I mean, if the Oilers had signed Tyson Berry for four years, where does that leave Evan Bouchard? Right, they sign yeah. him for one year. A year from now, that picture may be drastically changed, and the Oilers might say, "Well, we've got Evan Bouchard ready to go, and Tyson Berry's asking for six million now. Well, we're just going to have to move on and use that money for something else." You know, and they'll have they'll have an option. Whereas if they lock the guy up for three or four years, then they're kind of hamstrung in what they can do. I guess Turris and Archibald both signed two-year deals, so in theory, they could be blocking. Um, <laughs> If they don't pan out, like if, if Turris falls off a cliff this year, they got him another year and they're kind of stuck with him. But those contracts are low enough right. uh, that you could bury the probably you could bury the guy. And if a, and if a guy comes up on a minimum contract, it works out to about the same. Um, so it's they're not really blocking. You know, anyone earning close to the league NHL minimum is not really blocking other players in any real dramatic sense like James Neal is right like that's a major uh blocking like let's face it Neal right now is blocking Negard and Puli RV and Tyler Benson and players who might be better than him this year from getting on the roster or, or getting more playing time and he bet so he's got to really perform for the Oilers not to be and that's of course an after effect of the Milan Lucic contract right. so I was just gonna say ouch Bruce, let's talk about paying for that mistake. At least James Neal had a decent year last year. Like, and he was good in the playoffs. Like, Lucic wasn't even good in the playoffs the one year that they that they made the playoffs. So James Neal was, I, I thought, an effective playoff player. And I'm hoping that with kind of spot duty, that he they can get one more year, at least one more year at a Neal where he's good on the power play, okay-ish at even strength. And then when you get to the playoffs, because he's a veteran guy, he cranks it up and and can help the team win. So. I'm not, 
like I, I, there's some things that I really like about James Neal's game right now still. So it's, this isn't the disaster that I think Lucic was, honestly. Like, I don't, I didn't like anything about Lucic's game in the last year with the Oilers. But that contract isn't one of the things you like. <laughs> no, it ain't. And, and you're right. I mean, it's, it's a roadblock. Mm. And, the, and the fewer of those you have, especially the guys on the downside of the curve, uh, the better. The bigger mistake, I think, obviously, right, like to me is the, the big, if you want to blame Holland for anything, it's the Cassian contract, right? Now, he couldn't anticipate COVID, and this was signed pre-COVID. And if he had just waited another two months, uh, everything would have changed. So, yeah, but that's, this contract, is a, it, it can be seen right now as a mistake. And um, how much the orders pay for that mistake is yet to be seen. Hopefully, Zach Cassian can continue to at least be a really useful fourth-line player in all four of those years of that contract. But that's yet to be seen. And, and, and you, like, you always do need that really tough, aggressive presence on a team, and he can provide that. So um, it's easy to see him having at least fourth-line value. He might be overpaid, but that might not, with so many young players bubbling up, that might not be such an issue. Bruce, let's talk about um, the goalies. What are you What are you thinking about heading into this year? Specter, Mark Specter wrote about this. You've written about this. Mm-hmm. What's your take? Yeah, uh, I missed Specter's article, so mine is completely independent of that. But, but, but uh, uh, presumably, he may have reached some of the uh, similar conclusions. I mean, the obvious thing here is that they've gone back with what they know. Uh, they they were locked into Mikko Koskinen's deal which had two years to run at 4.5 million dollars which was P- Peter Shirelli's last uh, contribution to the uh, oil situation uh, but they, <laughs> they uh, uh, when uh, Holland uh, in the first day of free agency the goal he, he made a serious offer on uh, uh, Jacob Markstrom uh, reportedly seven seven years at five million and possibly even five point x million and markstrom eventually signed with calgary for six years at six million and the same day that that was happening a whole bunch of other goalies uh were signing elsewhere uh cam talbot went to minnesota braden holtby went to vancouver matt murray that the others had also expressed some interest and signed a long-term deal in ottawa uh that some of them, uh, Henrik Lundqvist, who's now apparently out for the season with a heart issue and probably retired, uh, he'd signed with Washington. That all happened on the first day of free agency. I'm tempted to say July 1st, except for it was something like October 9th this year, but yeah. the very first day of free agency. Well, by the second day, equivalent to July 2nd, the, the goalie market was uh, fairly limited. There were still a few guys out there. Uh, some people liked Aaron Dell, the backup goalie for uh, San Jose, <clears throat> that wound up signing uh, an NHL minimum contract to be a third goalie in Toronto. Well, uh, guys like that were available, but uh, uh, Holland went back to Mike Smith. Uh, he gave him a substantial uh, reduction in his contract, uh, cut his uh, base pay by uh, 25%, and cut his bonuses, potential bonuses, by something over 70%. Uh, in the process, he, he slashed, probably slashed a million dollars from the goaltending budget. Uh, and he proceeded to use the, uh, well, the million dollars, you could say, is what he used to sign one of the players, you know, say Dominic Kuhn. Uh, not a bad get for a million bucks. Uh, or you could say the the money he didn't spend on uh, Jacob Markstrom, he used to address a whole bunch of other issues on the roster. You know, Tyson Berry plus Mike Smith cost about the same that they would have paid for Jacob Markstrom. Plus, of course, they would have been locked into that contract for years and years. Uh, these guys both signed for one year. Uh, so it was a reorganization of the budget. And, of course, the question is, is the goaltending that they had last year good enough to get the job done this year? Uh, I'd make the case they got the job done last year. There was a lot of shaky moments, but at least in the regular season. I mean, then you can point to that four-game playoff series and you can blame 
uh, goaltending is part of the reason for the for the defeat, and you wouldn't be wrong. Uh, but you would be wrong if you said it was the whole reason. Uh, and they've got uh, you know two returning veteran goalies. Uh, one thing Holland did in uh, this summer was he signed a I would say a legit number three goalie with uh, you know a decent amount of pro experience and some NHL experience. Whereas last year they didn't have a single goalie in the organization that had even a minute of NHL action beyond the two guys that played the whole season. Luckily, neither of them ever got hurt seriously enough to miss any time. But uh, in Anton Forsberg. They now have what's obviously going to be a taxi squad goalie, the number three guy that they'll carry around with the team in the in the uh, uh, in the COVID situation. He's you know he's a, a sort of an ideal um, player to fill that role. And in a pinch, if Mike Smith turns into Jonas Gustafsson in 2017 and and his game just falls apart, well. They could call up Anton Forsberg. They could send down Mike Smith. They'd have to eat some of Smith's contract, but they'd actually come out $375,000 ahead on cap space by making that transaction. So that's sort of putting a little extra pressure on Mike Smith from below to keep his game going and keep keep his game up. Now, I personally think that, you know, Mike Smith, obviously his skills are eroding. His style is not for everyone. Some people absolutely hate the guy. Uh, I don't hate him, but, uh, you know, I know there's a lot better goalies out there, but he's one competitive, combative son of a gun. He, he reminds me of uh, well, the late career, which is all we saw of Dwayne Rollison. And he mm-hmm. reminds me something of, of Roley the goalie in terms of his approach to the game. And, and uh, it's clear that both uh, Holland and Tippett uh, admire his, his competitiveness and his leadership. And... Then there's the extra degree of his puck handling that uh, became a something of a wild card factor in games that he played. But it, the team played better in front of Mike Smith. They did. They allowed 10% fewer shots on net for Smith than they did for Koskinen. And you can't say all of 10% is puck handling. They scored 13% more goals when playing in front of Smith than Koskinen. Is that random distribution? Well, maybe. Uh, is the team is more cohesive for some reason? Well, who the hell knows? I, you know, I'm not a, a mind reader, but uh, uh, the case can be made that the Oilers played better hockey when Mike Smith was in net behind him than they did for Mikko Koskinen. And whether that would hold true for 2021 is another question. But they, you know, they've, uh, uh, I guess, they've made their bet. The Ken Holland clearly signaled that he thought goaltending was the biggest weakness on the Oilers when he offered that contract to Markstrom. I found it an alarming contract. I think it would have been a huge mistake. And it was it, and of all the things that Ken Holland has done so far as GM, I'm. It's the thing that that, that worries me the most. That I just am not a fan of giving huge money, long-term, seven-year contracts to 31-year-old or whatever, wherever the heck Markstrom was players. I just think it was a colossal bullet dodged from the Oilers. Glad he went to Calgary. So, but that said, Holland himself sent a clear message that he doesn't believe that this goaltending is good enough. Um, and that was, a, I, I, I'm not going to disagree with that. Um, they weren't good enough. They were, they were weak in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, Bruce, if you want to go with the glass half full approach, I, I'm I heading into last year. I had more questions about the goaltending that I have this year. Right, Koskinen played better mm-hmm. last year than he had the year before. He was really good in the oh, regular yeah. season. He was genuinely solid. I I think Miko Miko Koskinen is a decent to good NHL goalie, and um, if he plays like he did last year, the orders are going to be okay because he's a good goalie. The question is the backup, and right. I don't know. You know, Mike Smith. Um, if you want to go with glass half full, you could say he had one terrible month or six yep. week stretch and the rest of the year he was really good. And if he's just healthy and doesn't get overplayed, he'll be fine. So you could say that. On the other hand, he's had two years where he's had essentially a 900 save percentage, right. 898, I think, and 900. And, and, he's, and he's not getting any better. There's no reason to expect him to improve on that. He gets banged up. He has terrible stretches in the year. 
and they probably should have moved on from him would be one one thought and uh, the coach also has a sweet tooth for him so tends you know in theory the order should have moved on another goalie last january 1st like after smith's terrible run of play you could they they could have got sent him to the minors gotten rid of him and traded for another goalie uh it turns out that mike smith had his best run of play in the final uh that that didn't that was good that he didn't do that so maybe you know i i think koskinen is a good goalie i wish they had brought in a like i think they they could have brought in another backup goalie but they did in forsberg um a very very good minor league goalie who has had limited success at the nhl although in his one lengthy stretch as a backup goalie in the NHL. He had a 908 save percentage in Chicago one year. I think he played 20 to 30 games. 35 games. He actually played the most games of any Chicago goalie. Crawford got hurt and Forsberg played a, played a bunch. He outplayed the other back, the other backups and he was uh, number one for a while. And then Crawford came back and so that was that. But, so that's not on a strong defensive team. I don't but believe yeah, the Blackhawks. Yeah, that Black wasn't Fox a good team at that So point. if he if he could have, let's say if 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 Koskinen can be at nine fifteen, and Forsberg or Smith can be at nine ten, then that's good enough goaltending for the Oilers to make the playoffs this year. That'll be good enough. Um, if Koskinen can get can ratchet it up somehow, maybe to nine into the nine twenty range, and the backup goalie can be like nine ten. Um, then, then the Oilers, then the Oilers are one of the better teams in the league, probably because I think the other elements of the team are there. They're going to score goals. They just need some saves, and they need stronger defensive play, which can all, which will also come from, you know, we, we've heard about Darnell Nurse talking about wanting to ramp it up defensively, and that's music to my ears because the very best players on this team, Drysaddle, McDavid, and Nurse, have got to be better defensively for the Oilers to be an elite hockey team. That's that's you know that's that's a given, and I and I think that they're they're coming to that same conclusion, and I think having Drysaddle and McDavid at center will will full time will greatly facilitate that. But um, Bruce, I'm 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 kind of the glass half full because I think the Oilers have a good goalie in Koskinen, mm-hmm. and they've got a decent bet in Forsberg, if not Smith, to be the backup goalie. So I'm not. I think the Oilers' goaltending situation is better this year. Well, Koskinen, I mean, he had he posted a 9.17 save percentage last year, which was basically the same as $5 million man, $6 million man, Jacob Markstrom. Yeah. And it was the exact same as Stanley Cup winning goalie Andre Vasilevsky, 9.17. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a good number. It's not like high, high, high end, but it's up there with, you know, it's not a problem when your goalie is and stopping 11 shots out of 12, which is what 917 is. Uh, he, uh, uh, he did get banged up uh, in a game on New Year's Eve against the Rangers where the Oilers almost blew a 6 nothing lead and wound up hanging on to win 7-5. Oh, I remember that. And he got hurt early in the third period, and then they gave him four goals in a row. And then they went on the road, and Mike Smith started the first four games of the road trip, and the Oilers came out of those games with seven points. And from then on, like in twenty uh, in twenty twenty, the Oilers played twenty nine or twenty nine games. Smith started nineteen of them, Koskinen ten. And so the idea that Mike Smith starting in the first playoff game was somehow uh, an out of mind choice by the coach, you know, there's more than one way to look at it. I'll just I'll just leave it there. I mean, it's a guy that he's sure. been relying on throughout January, February, and into March was the guy I started with, and he certainly moved away from him quickly when things went badly. So, Yeah, I guess, but Koskinen played the exhibition game against Calgary. Had started it, at the playoffs. Yeah. Started it, and anyway, yeah, um, this will be an ongoing foreign and everybody side, no doubt, and a, a source of much controversy. But I, I, I like I like Miko Koskinen at Bruce. I think he's a good goalie. I, he's just this huge guy, and when he's on his game, and he's often on his game, the other team starts losing their confidence and missing the net on their shots and getting really frustrated. And um, you know, he didn't play well in the playoffs. So I just think there's a huge recency bias against both Smith and Koskinen. 
which is warranted because it's everything to play well in the playoffs on a certain level. Like that's what it's all about is coming through in the playoffs. It's why I, I've always rank, ranked Grant Fuhrer, always ranked Grant Fuhrer ahead of Andy Moog because he just was, a I thought, a significantly better playoff player than Andy Moog was. So uh, there, there is that, but I'm, 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 I'm generally okay. I'm, and I'm, I'm probably wrong. Maybe it's going to be a big disaster for the Oilers, but I just hope. <laughs> I just, um, I see some reason for hope. They had of the if there is a Canadian division, the Oilers had the second best goals against average of any of the Canadian teams last year. So there you go. You know, it's not like. I mean, they're average. Canadian Canadian division teams are all fairly average, other than Ottawa. But the, you know, the Oilers were 15th out of 31 in the NHL. If you prefer to look at it that way, in, in goals against average, and that was with a ton of empty net goals against. And and they had, uh, uh, you know, it was obviously not ideal. But the two of them between them had a 9-10 save percentage, which is exactly the league average. So it's. I just I don't see it as a big gaping hole uh, that some do, and I do think they'll change the mix this year. And that Koskinen will play 60 percent to 40 for Smith, or, or even more. And they might even with a three goalie system, Forsberg might play a little bit, might not. But I think Koskinen will emerge as the number number one this year, playing a clear majority of the games. Alrighty, so hopefully uh, we'll get some news this week about when when it all starts, and um, we'll go from there. Yeah, yeah, that would be uh, be music to our ears to have some positive have some positive news. Time these days, I hear this word positive. It's because somebody tested positive. <laughs> yes. so. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, thanks for talking, Bruce. No, yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast.